Hey, Rafe. Hey, Colin. How's it going? Good, good, good. We've been thinking about, or I've been thinking about the, la- the last month or two, kind of that like Zai as a project is sort of at this interesting inflection point where it is now a concrete enough, real enough project that like, like I use Zai most days mm-hmm. and it's not like a polished, finished editor. This is something the Mac client is what I'm mostly yeah. using. And it's certainly not like a product. I certainly wouldn't encourage most other people to be using it. Yeah. But all of a sudden, it's easy now to sort of finally see the forest coming out of the trees a little bit, where all of a sudden I can imagine turning into a polished product. But at the same time, I've now had all this experience of seeing the ways that there are like now things like architectural decisions we've made that maybe I would like want to reconsider. Yeah. And and so it's sort of like, on one hand, there's this inclination to like push forward and take what currently exists and try and mold that into something that we would distribute. And on the other hand, there's this like inclination to sort of go back and start everything again. Yeah. And so we were talking about this a little bit and we thought it might be useful to sort of split this sort of discussion in two parts and focus initially on the history of Zai and the motivations behind it. Specifically in certain, like, specific domains, like the decisions we've made around architecture and IPC, and maybe to let that sort of set a shared understanding, or like establish a shared understanding. And then at some future point, we can come back and we can have a discussion that's more focused on what the next steps might be, or what of those decisions we might want to be reconsidering. So maybe you could sort of start by walking through a little bit, like where this came from, what what made you decide you wanted to work on a new text editor? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that we made a lot of interesting decisions. And it's worth taking a look at those and kind of figuring out what worked, what what actually turned out to be trickier or harder or didn't work as well as we hoped, what did work. I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. So I think this is a great opportunity to uh, to go over that. So Zai's almost three years old. You know, I kind of started the code base in March of 2016. And at that time, I was working on Android text, and I was working on editing and other things in Android text. And I was very frustrated by some of the limitations that I was running against that Android text was really designed for very small documents only, like what could fit on a cell phone Mm. screen. And people were using it, people were scaling it up, and it was running into scaling problems. And so I think the very origin of Zy Editor was thinking about what data structure would you use to represent the text and what data structure would you use to represent deltas? Because those are particular pain points in Android. Android was having not just quadratic, but some n-cubed behavior in in the representation of rich text with the span data structure. And I was like, well, we can do better than this. And so that really was the start of Xi. What data structure is ideal for representing this? And kind of reconsidering a lot of the things that were going on in Android How do you do the connection between the main text editor and the IME, which are in different processes? And so it was an exploration in that direction. And I think mostly it was just me realizing we can do a lot better than the current state of the art. What was uh, Android using to represent text or to store text? Um, (laughs) So it's a spannable string builder. It's a Java data structure. And it's basically a string plus these span objects. And that really uses the Java object system where there's kind of instance of to decide like the different types of spans, some of them. Are spans used to, do they like contain annotations or metadata? That's sort of like how you do rich text is with spans or or are they doing something else? Yeah, yeah. So there's different kinds of spans and some of them just just 
uh, affect presentation. Some of them are metadata that can be used by the app. Like, for example, when you do spelling correction, there's metadata in there about what the possible spelling yeah, okay. alternatives are. And then there's other things like if you're going to do an if you're going to do an image, that's a replacement span. So hmm. it's a fairly general technique. Okay. And just out of curiosity, so if I'm in, if I'm editing a text message in the messages app, and yeah, how is that edit represented? Am I have to reallocate a new buffer for the entire string on every character insert or no it's it's uh the text is actually not in too too bad shape if i'm recalling correctly it's a gapped buffer for the text okay uh which is classic yeah yeah it works pretty well so the performance problems in there are kind of 95 percent spans and you know not so much the text buffer unless you're dealing with really 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 large documents okay cool so this principally came out of a feeling that there were there were clear, clear wins available in terms of just how we were representing text and text metadata. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was those explorations are really what I think was the genesis of the Zai editor as a project. So did that start with experimenting with data structures? Were you doing some reading? Did you have things in mind? Yeah, so a lot of it was exploring the computer science of the data structure. Like it's very clear that an editing operation can be done in n log n time. And you have to use the right data structure for that, but those data structures exist. They've been around actually for 20 or 30 years. And so what I felt at the time and I think has been borne out well, talk about, you know, revisiting those decisions, is the use of a rope as the data structure to represent not just the text, but also the annotations on top of the text. And it has n log n behavior. Hmm. And and I think more important, I think the thing that makes the rope decision excellent for text editors is that that's the worst case behavior. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have pathological corners. It doesn't have weird stuff where if you do kind of the normal stuff, it behaves well. But if you do something a little bit different, then it starts falling apart in performance. Everything that you do is touching a relatively small amount of data in the data structure. Mm-hmm. And I guess a reality of text is that people write a lot of it. People encode it in all sorts of different ways. And it's kind of not a domain where you can get away with ignoring edge cases. That's right. Like, yes. You will find them all eventually. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. Okay, so... You were writing some Java. You were working on Android tech stack. Yeah. Uh, at some point, you started getting interested in the rope data structure. Yeah. And maybe in using trees to represent text and text-adjacent data in general. Definitely. And then at some point, like, do you sort of decide to start writing some code? Did you, were you... Yeah, pretty much. And Google's very generous. They give you 20% time. And especially mm. if it's something that is relevant to your daily work. You know, I was really encouraged to go off and explore the stuff. I was also exploring rust and i was i was looking at i had done some work uh with rust but not a serious rust project and so this intersection of an advanced data structure this rope data structure and rust started looking really appealing an interesting story though when i started zy editor that Rust was one of several choices. It was not given that I was going to do it in Rust, although I was Mm -hmm. very interested in it. The other choice that I was looking at very seriously was Go. And the reason that I was looking at Go is that I felt like for the other tools, the kind of IDE and code search and stuff like that, that there was a lot of infrastructure at Google that was Mm. written in Go and that it would be easier to integrate all these pieces and get it used as sort of Google's internal text editor. Right. And I, I consider it, I did some experiments. Some of my early experiments with that data structure suggested that if you wrote this thing in Go, that it would end up using kind of a lot more memory than you would hope for. And this is that mostly about like inefficiencies in like pointer sharing across threads or 
it, like the GC or it's mostly the GC and the GC tuning that Go has a sweet spot, which is you know a fairly large resource server style deployment. And within that sweet spot, it's very efficient. It's very good. But if you're thinking about like a little tiny thing. Uh, it does start up all this garbage collection overhead and that, that costs memory. And that was one of the things that I wanted to really optimize, I think. So you were thinking both about the algorithmic complexity of the data structures involved in text manipulation, but then also, I guess, about performance in a number of other metric spaces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so it was basically a choice between Rust and Go. And I started playing around with Rust and writing some rope algorithms, rope data structures in Rust, and using some of the more advanced features of Rust, like uh, generics. So the rope data structure in Xi is generic. It is not just text. You can store all kinds of tree structured data in it. And I think that worked out really well. And there were some other things that were very nice too, like the rope data structure is fundamentally an immutable data structure. And so what, is, what does that mean? What is a, an immutable data structure? Immutable data structure means that if you want to edit text, if you want to insert you know, a little substring at this point in the text, you get a new string or a new rope, which is a rope is just a representation of a string that can be very large. You get a new rope that has the inserted text and you still have the old one. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't been overwritten. It hasn't been mutated in place. And because of the qualities of or of the rope data structure or the tree that underlies the rope, this isn't as perhaps memory expensive as, as a naive interpretation might suggest. It's it, not like we are constantly copying the entire buffer over. Exactly. That's the genius of the rope data structure, that it splits it into these chunks and it puts them in this B-tree-like data structure. And when you do something like this, you only have to copy small amounts of memory, kind of bounded amounts of memory, even if you're looking at a very large string. So what are the advantages of this immutability? One of the advantages is that if you have multiple revisions that you're looking at, you know, the classic case is undo, where you have an old revision that you can have both of those, right? If you want to query based on an older revision of the text, you can do that without having to kind of navigate through lots of deltas. Um, hmm. But it's, you know, these are, th this is kind of a stylistic choice that immutable data sure. structures are a more principled sort of functional programming like way of representing strings. And if you do it right, then it's an abstraction that you don't have to be thinking about the low level details about like where in memory are these pieces of my text stored. You can say, this is a string and I want to do this edit and I want to get this new version of it back and I want to do queries in it. And Rust really gives you the beautiful abstraction capabilities to do that and get a very nice result. When you look at code written on top of this Rust data structure, the rope data structure, it's not painful. It's It feels clean. It feels like you're dealing with strings and edits and the kind of things that you want to deal with instead of the low-level representation details. Yeah, and then you end up with a compiled object that is not slow for all of that. Absolutely. The performance is excellent, and, and especially the worst-case performance. So you were thinking about specifically Android, and that had you think about text in general. But there is a big difference between writing like a new text storage abstraction and writing a cross-platform GUI programmer's text editor. Yeah. Was there like a point where sort of you realized that was the project? Or was that just kind of like a nice proving ground for these ideas about ropes and text storage? Yeah, that's also um, a major part of the origin story of Xi. And so I was thinking about how do you write these complex GUI apps in a modern way. And one of the things that was really popular at the time was microservices. 
as a way of factoring a larger complex problem into smaller pieces. It was way back in 2016. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, microservices have been around for a, a lot longer than that, but uh, it was definitely on a lot of people's minds back then. And uh, if you look at Go and Rust, especially back in 2016, neither of those are good languages to write a GUI app in. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at that kind of architectural choice of what if you do this essentially as a microservice where you have a process, which is the core, which is very good at manipulating these data structures and doing the heavy lifting and dealing with very large documents and so on and so forth, but is not concerned with the details of drawing the GUI. And then mm. you have another process, which is really the view. It's not representing the whole document. It's not, it's not concerned with that stuff, but it is concerned with interacting with the user, presenting a really nice looking native look and feel and so on and so forth. And the idea that I had is that these two things, if you're doing these as two separate processes, they can be done with different technology stacks. You can do the core in a language that's really optimized for that kind of data structure manipulation, Rust or mm -hmm. Go. And you can do the, the GUI, like if you're writing a Mac front end, if you're writing GUI for Mac, then doing it in any other technology stack other than Cocoa is really going to be painful. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, also Swift was, I think, had just kind of come out and... Yeah, a couple of years, but it was yeah. certainly still yeah, in adoption. Yeah. And so that was another motivation that I was like, I want to play with Swift. I want to see how Swift is for building these things. It's kind of more exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the really the original prototype of, uh, you know, let's build a, a GUI in Swift and using the N Mac native UI technology, let's build a core in Rust and let's have those two things communicating over a message channel. Okay. And so I guess the point I'm kind of curious about is at what point this switched for you from being a set of experiments around data structures and like reducing algorithmic complexity of certain editing operations into an actual project to write a text editing right. application. I don't remember a specific point at which it sort of became clear that this is what I wanted to do, but I was definitely thinking if you have a if you have this technology, what can you do with it? Where's a good where's a good place to go? Mm. And I was definitely unsatisfied with the editing options that were available at the time. And I felt like we basically had 20, 30 year old editors that weren't adapting to the modern world, weren't really becoming IDEs. And then we had new things that were very rich and very featureful and did most of what you wanted to do, but were incredibly bloated, slow. I mean, the performance characteristics were really, I think at that time, very unsatisfying. And it became clear to me that there was an opportunity that you could, if you had these better technology pieces, mm -hmm. that you might be able to put them together into something that would be very compelling for real programming tasks. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it makes sense then for us to sort of dive into some specific decision areas or some specific, like, I guess, architectural decisions that have been made over the last three years yeah. Uh, to sort of like talk about what their motivations were, what the alternatives might have been, and what eventually pushed us towards the decisions that have been made. Yeah. So the core decision, uh, I think the decision at the heart of the root, really, mm -hmm. of a decision tree is this uh, split between a core and a GUI front end. And mm -hmm. from that, you need to have a message 
channel between the two. And so there's right. a lot there's a lot of decisions there. We use JSON RPC. So that's one class of decisions. Another decision that I think was baked in very early in the project is buying into async in a very deep way. Hmm. Most editors at the time had a fairly synchronous design where you have the old state and you have an editing command. You want to insert something, you want to do something, and that moves it to the new state, and then you draw the new state on the screen. Mm -hmm. And that is a simple architecture, but if one of those editing operations is slow, if one of those editing operations takes time to complete, then that leaves the editor in an unresponsive state for potentially macro amounts of time. Yeah, and I guess if you're talking about a single-threaded application, and we necessarily are, it means that you're blocking on user input, you're not able to update the screen, exactly. you might not blink the cursor. Yeah, you might, not okay. be able, you might not be able to scroll all those things, and especially typing. Like, so one of the things that you might want to do is syntax highlighting. And sure. syntax highlighting is based on regexes. And regexes are a pretty slow way of doing this. I actually spent some time on alternatives to regexes that would be faster. But regexes work pretty well. And if you have a very, very large document, it might take time to do the syntax highlighting. So the idea... Sure, or you can have a denial of service in your document where you have some pathological backtracking regex that yeah. is not going to... Yeah, all those things are possible. So mm. the idea of Xi is that, okay, then you can still type. You can still see the text. It still inserts. You can still do all of, you can navigate, scroll, but maybe it'll take a little bit more time for the colors to show up. And I, I was like, that's going to be a better user experience. And then even deeper, if you're doing analysis of the program, uh, mm. it's really clear that that can be really slow. You're kind of invoking a whole compiler and um, that you need to do that in an asynchronous way. And looking at the problems of asynchrony, I think this was another you know huge piece of what I was trying to figure out. How do you solve those problems of asynchrony? What happens if you have some code on the screen and there's a plugin that's doing analysis, that's doing syntax checking, type checking, and it comes back and it highlights a particular span of your program in red that its type is wrong. Mm -hmm. But while it's doing that, you changed a comment, you deleted a line. And a very sure. common experience is that the red highlighting ends up in the wrong place. And then it mm -hmm. maybe takes a little time, it convert, you know, recalculates and converges. But, you know, I was like, maybe you can do better than that. Maybe you can use some technology from operational transforms, the kind of technology that was being developed for collaborative mm. text editing. What if we use that technology? What if we use that knowledge to solve problems about how to make asynchronous plugins work more smoothly? Right. So this comes out of like, if we're going to do asynchrony, which means that I'm going to send, I'm as the front end, I'm going to send edit events of various kinds to another process. Right. And then it is, on its own time, going to send me back some representation of the changes to the view state that I'm going to draw. Right. That necessarily means that we need some way of merging edits or changes that might be coming in from plugins in the future might be coming in from like other like collaborators on a shared document right and we need some mechanism for agreeing on a state of the document at a given point in time right that might reconcile simultaneous edits and changes from different places that's exactly right and that's a more complicated problem than doing everything synchronously because in a synchronous world mm -hmm. You can serialize, you can do those edits one at a time. It's your turn, it's your turn, it's your turn. And there's kind of like a very old approach where you lock 
to, to kind of enforce that. Mm-hmm. And that locking is going to yield really bad experiences with waiting and unresponsiveness. And so, so that was a lot of the motivation is like, let's solve those problems of asynchrony in a more principled, more modern way. Okay. Maybe we'll dive into that in a little yeah. bit. We, so we've decided that we want asynchrony. Right which means that we want certainly our front end and our core running in separate isolates. Yes. That is at least threads. Yeah. But ultimately, the architecture that was settled on, and it was never sort of settled on zealously. Right. I think that's important to stress, is it was certainly, like, in, in my experience in the project, it's never been, like, a, a stone tablet handled, handed down on high that, like, this is the way it is and the way it must right. be. But the way that was settled on was to have the front end and the core be in separate processes and to communicate over standard in and standard out via a JSON message passing protocol. Exactly, yes. JSON RPC. Yes. Were there other... Like, I, I can think of other alternatives. Right? We could have imagined having the core be a shared object or something, that, or just a statically linked library. Yeah. Did you consider those? Or I did consider those. And it's still, I think, one of the more interesting trade-off spaces that I'm not going to say that JSON RPC is ideal. It has some drawbacks. And the other choices also have drawbacks. So having it in process... Hmm, let's see. <laughs> this, is so, <laughs> this is so complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost a question that we can punt on. Yeah. <laughs> in that we sort of have decided that maybe the library model is better, but I can see there being interesting like reasons to, to like the process model. Yeah. Like it's been used elsewhere successfully. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the main motivations of the process model is to allow very loose coupling to, uh, to make it so that you don't have to solve the problems of how do you load DLLs and how do you do that binding. And mm. Yeah. I think I overestimated, like, those problems are actually not that hard. That if you decide you want to have a front end and you want to load a Rust library to do your heavy lifting, you can solve that problem. That's not terribly difficult. Mm-hmm. But looking at JSON RPC, there were particular motivations behind those choices. So one of the motivations is that I felt that JSON was well supported in pretty much every programming language in the world. And that if you wanted to write plugins that that wouldn't be a barrier. You could say, you could get started, you could write your plugin using JSON RPC and the amount of overhead that you had to deal with, the amount of boilerplate would be very small because your language would support it. Mm. Now, JSON has a reputation for being pretty inefficient and that is a complex discussion. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the implementation of JSON in three languages that was actually quite good. C++, which has rapid JSON, which is kind of, amazing that it does the json parsing at kind of assembly language like speeds Hmm. this is not where the time is going is the parsing of the json syntax so that was telling me that it was possible to achieve very high performance rust serde which was almost as fast as uh, rapid json and very nice to program in and then i was also looking at python which had a fairly optimized json parser so that you could do you could do the json parsing using the standard library json parser a lot faster than doing any kind of processing of the structure in python. Mm, okay. Now it turns out that that was kind of one of the assumptions that i made that turned out to be slightly not as uh, not as nice as i thought. And there are downsides to json. First of all, the json parsing in swift is astonishingly slow. 
It is between it is mm. between 20 and 50 times slower than Rust. And mm. this continues to be the case. In fact, it got even worse in Swift 4, which has this new encodable protocol on top of it. I remember digging into this yeah. a little bit, like a year and a yeah. half ago or so. Do you have any, like, this is a little weedsy, but do you have any conclusions or do you have any insights into the, the trade-offs that might have led to those performance They were definitely trying to focus on easy nice APIs for programming instead of raw performance. And some of it mm. is the use of the encodable protocols, which the protocol-based programming in Swift is very allocation-heavy. You end up allocating a lot of small mm. objects, which is a recipe okay. for poor performance. Some of it is just not focusing on the implementation details. So I think that Swift probably will get faster, but it will take time. And that was mm -hmm. not what I was hoping for when I first adopted JSON. I was really expecting that that would be a piece of infrastructure that you could count on. Okay. Even Surday, there was one big drawback to Surday that I did not consider at the time, which is code bloat. And if you look mm. at the size of the Xi binary, I think it's roughly seven megabytes now. And yeah, that of that, probably three quarters is the JSON serialization. And mm. this is this gets you also into very complex territory. And there's a lot of projects to do. There's, a, um, I think, a race type version of Surday. There's a mini Surday, which, uh, which has different sets of trade-offs. So I think this is a space that's continuing to evolve. And I think that it's likely that languages will converge on excellent JSON implementation, but we're not quite there. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Surday is such a wonderful yes. tool that it hides so much from the user that I, I know that like in certain places we've had, it's so easy to like annotate some data structure with like deserialize, yeah. serialize, but then you don't like notice that maybe... Like for, for for obscure reasons, there's at least like one data structure that we have to at least serialize or deserialize in all three of JSON, YAML, and TOML, yeah. where like we load it from our config files, which are TOML, but it might also be loaded from like a legacy format from another package that is YAML, yeah. and then we send it to the front end as JSON. Right. So that means we're doing, we're getting these code generated implementations of these fairly complex functions three times. Yeah. So so I think that's a mixed decision. And so the other thing that was, uh, I think, contributing to JSON is that I was looking at, well, how much data do you need to be sending across the wire? And the entire architecture of Xi is based on sending small deltas that edits usually don't touch that much data, don't change that much data, that you just change a little bit of string and that changes a little bit of what gets drawn on the screen. And kind of in the worst possible case, you only have to send to the front end what's visible on the screen. And this mm. is not a huge amount of data. This is not like bulk heavy lifting. And so I was thinking you can get away with things not being as kind of binary tuned um, if you're clever about the way that you optimize doing as little work through the pipeline as possible. All right. So if you assume that you're going to be sending small messages anyway, right. you don't expect parse time to be even really a noticeable part of your budget. That's right. And then, you know, it depends on how slow your JSON parsing is. Like uh, when we were doing measurement of the Mac client, we mm. were finding that it would take multiple milliseconds just to parse the JSON message because first of all, sometimes you do change the whole screen. Like when you do syntax highlighting mm. changes, it you do have to do a whole screen worth. Yeah, uh, and for perspective, like two milliseconds might be what we would expect the core process to take to like receive a message as raw bytes, parse it, 
process it, update state, compute deltas, encode deltas, and send them back to the client. Yeah, two milliseconds is a lot for the core process, but for plugins, two milliseconds, you you can easily spend two milliseconds doing that. And then the front end can easily spend two milliseconds or more handling the response that comes back from the core. And mm. that was really where our main like lack of 60 frames per second was coming from is the overhead on the front end in responding to updates from the core. So putting aside the particulars, like we're motivated to have a channel or a transport mechanism that is like pretty universally available. Right. And are there any like other particular motivations for that besides just wanting to be able to have front ends on various platforms or front ends in different languages? Yeah. So the transport between the different modules, uh, we were talking a lot about the transport between the front end and the core, but the other, the other transport is between the core and the plugins, which might be doing small focus tasks, or they might be doing really big things like going into program analysis and giving you completions for types and all of that fun stuff. Did you have a sense of the role of plugins envisioned early on, or did that sort of evolve over time? Yeah, definitely. I wanted to support this kind of rich IDE-like functionality in plugins from the very beginning. And this, this is an interesting space because one way to think about this is that you're trying to solve a fairly generic problem where you want to build modular software where you have all of these different modules, you break down the larger problem. You you could build a very large monolithic IDE. You'd sure. end up with something like Eclipse and that's useful, but has really mm-hmm. kind of horrible performance problems that result to a very large extent from this large monolithic architecture. It's trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. So this dream or this vision of breaking down software into smaller modules and having them loosely coupled and talking to each other is a very old dream. And Mm -hmm. there have been a lot of attempts to solve it in a very general fashion. You can go back to DCOM, which is a Microsoft thing, trying to put COM over more loosely coupled network connections. You can look at CORBA, which people Hmm. probably don't even remember, but there was a huge... I'm just just thinking of Unix. Yes, Yes, Unix pipes being kind of a early prototype of this stuff, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But but then pipes having limitations that they don't do sort of rich structured data. And so a lot of yeah, these other okay. things that I'm talking about are exactly an attempt to do that kind of Unix, like small modules that are talking to each other, but make it so that it's not just unstructured text files, that it's it's things that like represent user actions and and so on mm. and so forth. So then there's there's Corba and there was a lot of interest in GNOME in Corba maybe 20 years ago. And okay. a lot of people did a lot of investment into this and it didn't pan out. Like nobody uses Corba for anything uh real in in certainly the GNOME world these days. And then even more recently you have stuff like sandstorm.io which is based on Cat and Proto which is a very much more sophisticated serialization format than JSON. Mm-hmm. It has a lot more attention to being uh, efficient, to having uh, capabilities in it. Uh, it's it's kind of a very sophisticated, modern approach at the problem. And three years ago, it looked pretty promising, and now it is basically in life on life support. Which is why is that? I I think that's one of the big questions. I think that this problem of general modular software probably can be solved. But I Mm. don't think that 
it's quite come together yet. I don't think people quite understand how all of the pieces fit together. And that's interesting. Like, why? Mm-hmm. what about this problem makes it so hard that after easily 30 years of people, smart people thinking about it, that we still haven't quite cracked it? We don't, we don't really have an instance of it. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me more generally of like the difficulty of, of software reuse. Yes. That so often you need to rewrite something that some near equivalent or near peer of which has been written already, you know, five times. Yeah. Many of those may be reasonable open source implementations, but the particular requirements of some particular platform or domain or yeah. use case like demands or is unsuited to existing solutions. Yeah. So, so I think that, so I don't have an answer to that. I don't know why it's that hard. Uh, software is hard, but you know, why is this particular case of it so hard? I'm not really sure. I do think that, uh, it's probably best to look at more focused, more special cased versions of the general problem. And I think we do have examples of that. I think one of the most promising by far is the language server protocol. Mm. And I think that it's not perfect. There's actually a lot of rough edges. If you use a Rust language server, there's a lot of things that are not quite as smooth, not quite as clean, but I think we can get there from here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also think that more energy focused into getting the Xi protocols right can also succeed. I don't think we're very far off. Yeah. And there's, I've spent quite a bit of time digging into the language server stuff and it is really interesting to see that API develop. And a lot of it like clearly comes as an evolution of existing products and projects like this trying to pull out some anal- analysis features from uh, Visual Studio yes. and generalize them and make them available to like Visual Studio code. Yeah. And and I think a super important thing about language server and why language server is succeeding is that it is based on the TypeScript analyzer and it's based mm. on the C# analyzer, the Roslyn project. And mm-hmm. saying, "Okay, we have two things. How can we generalize from 2 to n?" And mm. I think that's a good recipe for success rather than coming to it from the point of like Korba saying, we have software objects hmm. that are communicating with each other in this distributed way. And yeah. we're going to have building an IDE as an instance of this general uh, picture. Yeah. So narrowing the domain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think Xi certainly... The process of trying to figure out these protocols took way more time and energy than I originally thought. There were individual problems. Like we spent months just trying to figure out how to get scrolling in a way that did mm. not flash and did not did <laughs> not get stuck. And we right. had to we had to solve a lot of individual granular problems. We had to introduce threads in the front end because there was the possibility, like just trying to trying to get that to happen on one single thread didn't really work. We had to figure out, you know, what happens if you scroll faster than the front, than, you know, some other module can keep up with. So there were some kind of really difficult problems that took a lot longer. And when we're talking about the plugin stuff, we still haven't quite gotten there. And I yeah. think, I think that, you know, the original dream that I had was that I would figure out the plugin protocol. It would be simple enough that you could implement it 
in any language that you like. You could just implement mm -hmm. it in Python and Ruby and JavaScript and whatever you like. And that once it was defined, it would open up this ecosystem where that would be a way that a lot of individual contributors to the project could come into the project, say, okay, I'm going to write this plugin to do this narrow specific thing. And yeah. I think that vision still has value. But if you look at the last three years, it's a very different story. It's, I want to do this, but the plugin protocol hasn't really stabilized yet. We don't really yeah. know the right way to express these things. So we can't just say to a newcomer, oh, here's how you do it. It's always like the, the real pro project is to figure out how do we extend the plugin protocol? How do we extend these asynchronous modular protocols in a way to support the work that you want to do? And we have had some success with that. We have had people mm -hmm. come in and do that, but it requires a great deal of thought, knowledge, energy that I, I definitely underestimated, you know, starting this project uh, three years ago. One of the areas there specifically that I've noticed just being a huge point of friction and like a huge speed bump on some development is the work around maintaining document state synchronicity between these different processes, but yes. while also like this is something one of the places where like perhaps a language like language server takes an easier route yeah. that has some clear limitations where like the language server has a full in-memory representation of your entire like working tree. That's right. Yeah. Whereas like that's okay until you happen to have like a, you know, a hundred megabyte JSON file that's like part of your project or that needs analysis. And all of a sudden this is existing in memory in two, three, four locations. Yes. So that's a very difficult general problem. And when we you know, if you look at a lot of the work that went into the plugin interface, a lot of it for a very long time, I was trying to solve a narrow problem of doing syntax highlighting in a plugin. Mm, and right. there's a lot of engineering that went into figuring out how much data do you need. You don't need the whole document always to do syntax highlighting. You can do it in mm -hmm. Windows. You can do deltas. You know, if you're only editing a small region of the document, then you don't need to have that whole thing in memory in the syntax highlighting plugin. And what ended up, I think, actually is really good that the the syntax highlighting protocol, this this maybe is a model of what we want to accomplish in Xi. If we can do the same kind of thing for the other sub problems of plugins that we did for syntax highlighting, we'll do well. The problem is the Performance assumptions that you make, these kind of questions, like how much of the document do you need to be seeing? How do you represent deltas? Mm -hmm. What you need for syntax highlighting is very different than what you need to do type analysis or a lot of the other things you want to do. So this kind of hope of saying, we'll solve all these problems for syntax highlighting, and then they'll just generalize to the other things that you want to do in plugins that didn't quite work out. Yeah, even the ways that like your caching strategies or your cache eviction strategies might be different for syntax highlighting than for exactly analysis or exactly right. exactly that. And so so there's a lot of pretty sophisticated work there that we did work out cache strategies, delta representation strategies, ways of representing state that are memory efficient, that are transport efficient, and I think this is a model like this picture of having the different pieces where they're talking to each other over JSON RPC. The JSON is not costing as much as the regular expression evaluation. Um, mm. It is incremental. So it always recolors the minimal region of the document that needs to be recolored. 
which is pretty cool, actually. Mm-hmm. One of the other, one of the original hopes that I had is that that work could be reused in other editors. Like once you mm-hmm. have a library, once you have a really good syntax highlighter, and I want to shout out a little bit to uh, Syntec, to the work that Tristan Hume yeah, did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is really excellent. It's it's probably the best general implementation of syntax highlighting that's that's in the open source world right now. You know, if you have another editor, uh, why not use this as a module? And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, and that did not get realized. There's nobody else that's using this technology in other than maybe toy uh, contexts. And I think a large part of the reason why is that this protocol, these assumptions that we're making about caching and data representation, it's very hard to just plug that in. It's not like yeah. a Unix pipe, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And even just like the way that we represent deltas is kind of tied to the fact that, well, maybe not quite, but like expects deltas to be applied in certain ways or make certain assumptions about the underlying storage. And... Yeah. So I think you could do that. I think you could write bridges from you know, VS Code or Atom Mm -hmm. to use the syntax highlighting plugin that we have. But uh, it would be a lot of engineering. And those projects have basically gone in a different direction, which I understand quite clearly. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So when we move from plugins a little bit to talk about this idea that we touched on briefly earlier of reconciling asynchronous edits. Right. So this is like a problem that the difficulty of which will be immediately clear to some people and not clear at all to other people in, in, in a very reasonable way. Right. Uh, where like until you've had to deal with it and think about it. Yeah. So asynchrony really is a different way of thinking about systems. In a synchronous system, you can think about time as this linear thing. And you really only have to be concerned with now. You know, here's the mm-hmm. state now. Here's what I want it to be next. Maybe you think about like now and next. Those are the two times that you're thinking about. And in an asynchronous system, all of the different objects that you're concerned with exist at potentially different times Mm -hmm. at the same time your front end (laughs) you know is maybe a revision maybe two revisions behind your plugin is maybe a revision maybe two revisions behind when you edit why don't we why don't we back up just a second what do we mean when we talk about revisions right yeah so so i think that this is a very classical standard way of dealing with asynchronous systems that you explicitly tag this history with named revisions. So every time Mm. there's a change to the document, you say it was at revision one, now it's at revision two. And then if you have, for example, an edit, then you can say, well, this revision apply, this is an edit that's based on revision one. And then if you do it wrong and you actually take an edit that was meant for revision one and you apply it to revision two, all kinds of bad things can happen. I gave the example earlier <laughs> of, you know, annotations from your analysis, you know, just coloring the wrong parts of the screen. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. So the idea is that you have this concept of a sequence of revisions. And whenever you reference anything, whenever you do any operation, that you explicitly state this is the revision that it's based on. And the other thing that I think fits nicely into the Xi model is that you're almost always talking about the delta from one revision to the next. You don't say, here is revision three, it's a 100 megabyte file. Mm. You say, here is revision three, here is the delta, it's two kilobytes of things that have changed. And the delta represents a minimum amount, a minimum representation of a transform essentially from one revision to another. That's right. Which is maybe a fancy way of just saying like, if you, you know, insert a character, the delta merely says, insert this character at this position in this revision and you will get this new revision. Exactly. 
So then you can then you can think about a lot of the editing operation, you know, a lot of the operations that happen in an editor. You can think about it in a very principled functional programming sort of way that mm -hmm. you have the document and the document has had a delta, so it's moved to a new revision, and then you have the view, what's shown on the screen, which is mm. a function of that document and it's not it's it's very closely based on that document, but it's a little different. It might have line breaks, it might have you know, formatting operations. So you have you have a document that's moved to a new revision and you want to compute what is the minimal delta that gets mm. the view to the new revision. And you can think about correctness in a way of, well, what would happen if I just did this computation in batch on the whole thing? So that's a way right. of talking about correctness. And this concept underlies Zai deeply. And I think the tricky part is in kind of a futuristic world, you might be able to do this in an automated way. You might say, this is the function. Mm. Figure out how to make that an incremental computation. And interestingly, um, there's a project uh, by Nico Matakis called Salsa, right, yeah. which is trying to do that in this very principled way. And I think that's a really interesting research direction to explore. There's, there's other things that do you know, incremental computation frameworks. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link. I was sitting down to watch that video this morning, or the first of those two videos this morning, and yeah. I ended up getting slightly distracted, but it is certainly yeah. on the top of my list right now. It's very interesting. And I think that those concepts underlie Zai, but what happens a lot is that you have to figure out what is the incremental way of doing this computation? What, how do you compute these minimal deltas? And there's a lot of computer science that goes into that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you, you like... You know, I've done, there's this rope science uh, document series, and a lot of that is concerned with exactly this problem of right. saying, well, how do you represent syntax highlighting in this functional way so that you can reason about, you can derive mathematically almost how to represent these incremental computations? Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And so then we have this idea of efficiently representing changes in this document over time. Right. How does that scale to multiple peers? Or when I say peers, I'm sort of lumping together the class of participants in this system that include like the front end right. and maybe plugins, which both may both be applying edits to the document simultaneously. That's that's right. And so so I think this was one of the explorations that I really wanted to do on Zai from the very beginning, that there is this literature on operational transformation, on how to build collaborative text editors that deals very principled with the problem of how do you deal with this asynchrony? How do you deal with merging potentially simultaneous changes? Does this work come specifically out of research on like text editors specifically, or is it from like thinking about distributed systems more broadly and this is like an application of those ideas to text editing? Yeah, or... it's it's definitely both. I think the origin of that literature is collaborative editing. You look at the Grove project from, I forget, okay. 25, 30 years ago, Jupiter, those kind of systems, those were organized around text editing specifically, you know, working mm. on a document. Um, the more modern research, uh, which is CRDTs, the very early CRDTs were based on text editing as an application, but the center of gravity of CRDT research, this is uh, concurrent replicated data types or commutative replicated yeah, data okay. types. That that really they're really looking at that as a distributed system problem of which text editing is one uh, one application. So I think that looking back, that I think there was a promise of saying there is a general solution from the operational transformation literature 
to solve these problems of asynchronous merging, conflict resolution. And I think the other assumption that we made, or I made, is to say that the problems of resolving asynchrony from multiple plugins that are operating on a document, things like syntax analysis and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. are similar. They're so similar to the problems of collaborative editing that you can use the same tools to solve them. Okay, interesting. And I think that, like, I see why that's a seductive argument, but (laughs) it basically falls down in two ways. And the first is that the literature on operational transformation is not a good place to look for solutions. In the sense that it is difficult to turn into like applied engineering solutions or yes um so the the um the reputation that operational transformation systems have is that they're incredibly difficult to implement and they're very tricky there's a lot of things that can go wrong Mm. and i wanted to know is that really true? Is there some principle? Is there some <laughs> kind of core at this that's simple that if you figure it out, then you can implement these things in a in a uh, in a clean, nice way? And the the short answer is no. The short answer is that everything in operational transformation space is a trade off, and mm-hmm. even this choice between you know old style operational transform and CRDT is a trade off. That uh, in old style operational transform, you kind of need a central server. Things can't operate as peers. So you need something that is sitting there at the center, serializing the editing operations. Mm. And you can build very successful systems on that. That's what Google Docs is based on. And there is a central server. Every time people collaborate on a document, it's managed by a uh, server in Google's cloud. And then CRDT gives you this promise of saying, well, it doesn't have to be that way. You can do things entirely in peers, but it's a trade-off that you have to represent all of the editing operations in this fairly restrictive mathematical model of what a CRDT will let you do. And there were specific problems that we tried to solve. Like <laughs> the, we could refer to the the issue, but there's this concept of soft text where I wanted to have it so that if you inserted an open parenthesis that it would insert a corresponding closed parenthesis. And then if you typed the closed parenthesis over that, it would merge those two so that it wouldn't insert two. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is something that I still to this day have not figured out how to represent in the CRDT model. It probably Mm -hmm. can be done, but it is advanced computer science. Like, you know, I thought about it a little bit. We've had other people look at that. And doing that in the classical CRDT way is pretty simple. You just say, well, you've got this operation, you've got that operation, they merge. Uh, Mm. Although there are potential failure modes. Like if you have a lot of concurrent editing at that that point, then maybe it would give you an unexpected result. But that's kind of a weird case that you you can deal with. A lot of the literature on operational transform is approximate or heuristic that it's saying in in the usual case you get merges that are good but if there's a lot of concurrent editing and undo and all the stuff going on then you you pretty much the best you can guarantee is that you get you end up with something and that everybody in this distributed system has the same something that's kind of the description of what correctness means in that space 
Right. Correctness is not what you want, necessarily, or what you would wish for. It's merely a state that is agreed on by everybody. Exactly. And so that was dis- okay. that was disappointing, because I was hoping to dig into that literature and find more of a statement of, yes, this is the correct way hmm. to merge these potentially concurrent or conflicting edits in these yeah. a- asynchronous cases. Perhaps encouragingly, this is an area that is like still very much under active research. I think and, so. Uh, like the causal tree stuff recently yes. um, from, I'm going to forget, I don't Arch- remember the real name, but Archagon. Ar- Ar- Archagon, yes, absolutely. Uh, as well as, I, I believe that's actually the same model that's being used in X-Ray, um, which is an interesting project. And they're being very, like, very thinking from the start for, about performance and having, like, yes. clear numerical goals, like quantifiable goals for, like, what is acceptable time it takes to modify 10,000 selections. And... A- absolutely, yeah. No, it, it is an interesting area of research. And, yeah, I spent a lot of time reading the literature. I spent a lot of time trying to come up with my own model of synthesizing CRDT and OT together. And I think that that was interesting work ultimately very frustrating because I never published it mm. and there's been a little bit of follow-up, but there hasn't, it doesn't feel like that's really been taken up. And one of the very specific problems that I was trying to solve is making it RAM efficient because a lot of the CRDT mm. literature is terrible in terms of the amount of RAM that these data structures take because you end up with these graph data structures where you have all of this metadata per node, which is used to resolve the conflicts and if a node represents a, a single edit or a single character, then the amount of RAM that it takes, you know, could be huge. Although right. okay. in, in a lot of cases, like if you're, if you're editing small programs, then taking tens of bytes per, you know, per edit is kind of okay. Yeah. And it feels like a problem where there are probably, certainly in like the, in the normal case of peers that are actively connecting and like actively connected and actively communicating yeah garbage collection becomes an option compression of like past history becomes an option absolutely but those are all like not trivial they're they're not trivial and i think the other thing about this space is that those are all trade-offs you you make a decision do i want to garbage collect do i want to have this thing where i have the complexity of figuring out when a garbage collection is safe when i'm not going to be needing to access that old data and you know this is going to depend on how many peers do you have? How dynamically are they connecting and reconnecting? Do they go yeah. offline for two weeks and then come back and reconnect and have to merge large amounts of state? And, you know, depending on the specifics, you're going to make different decisions. There's no one size fits all. There's no magic bullet that just solves those problems, which is which is kind of disappointing, actually. Yeah, this is definitely an area where there is uh, room for more thought and consideration and room for more study. Yeah. So going back to Zai, I think the the other question is, are the problems of asynchrony the same when you're dealing with multiple people that are editing and when you're dealing with agents that might be doing something like annotating? And, right. and the answer is no, that there's very specific things that you can look at that are different. If you're looking at something like syntax highlighting, which is interesting, uh, not, not syntax highlighting, sorry. If you're looking at something like syntax analysis, program analysis, that's going to be slow. That's going to have reaction times that are on human scale. Mm. But it also has the property that if there's a conflict, you can just throw away the stale annotation and redo the analysis based on the new one. Whereas if you're trying to resolve intense 
two people want to insert text. You really mm. kind of do want to insert both of those texts. And then there's all kinds of questions like what order, da, da, da. But that's kind of a different set of requirements. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so when you're looking at these complicated trade-offs, now you're saying, well, you're not going to make the same decisions if you're trying to resolve asynchronous edits from plugins as if you're trying to support a collaborative editing environment for, for people. Right. Okay. Maybe one last little area to just touch on a little bit is the question of like front-end responsibility around drawing. Yeah. So this is something we've gone back and forth on and... The approach that we've settled with right now is that basically the front end is completely responsible for drawing. Yes. We send them, we send a front end lines, mm -hmm. which might be a string and it might be a collection of spans that resolve, like have identifiers that resolve to styles that we have previously identified. And a style might be some like color and properties like whether or not something is italicized or underlined. Yeah. But we completely defer drawing to the front end. That's right. Was that always a clear decision to you? Yes, I think so. And part of it is bandwidth that, you know, drawing drawing pixels of rendered text to the screen is like if you're scrolling, that actually works out. I could do the math, but it's something like a gigabyte a second. It's kind of a surprisingly mm. large amount of data on right. a high res large monitor, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if you try and do that over a JSON RPC channel, <laughs> doesn't matter how good your, your JSON implementation is, that's gonna, that's gonna bite. Sure. So it's, it was always a case that the front end is responsible for the fine grained interaction with the user, scrolling, drawing text, dealing with the mouse, stuff like that. And, you know, I think the assumption from the early day, and, and, and this is another one of those assumptions that I think we questioned as we learned more, is mm -hmm. that the native technology of your front end was good. And <laughs> yeah, and, and in some ways it's very good. And in some ways it's kind of stale and kind of needing a refresh. And in particular, the speed of drawing text, of just getting text pixels on the screen in Mac OS um, at the time that we were really looking at this problem uh, was astonishingly slow. And the reason mm. why is that it was doing all of this uh, pixel compositing in software. And yeah, in, in a nuance here as yeah. well. I, I want to just push back, not push back, but yeah, I do get the sense that there are better solutions available than what we were able to find while looking quite thoroughly through what Coca had to offer. But like if you look like if you look like Xcode, like the rewrite okay. of Xcode, which includes a new text view. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. I think it's like really well done. Certainly like from a from the perspective of a user. Yeah. I think the performance characteristics are good. I think like it looks good. Yeah. It's more just or one of the problems I encounter here is that it's not clear to me there's not good documentation on how I would go about doing that. I can't go look at right. the code. It's yeah. hard to, there's like a, the domain knowledge is not readily available. That's, that's a big problem. So, so I'm going to push back on your pushback <laughs> that Xcode, the Xcode 9 rewrite had to do fairly extreme exotic things to achieve that performance. It had to render the text into, um, what do you call those things? Buffers, but there's a word for them that then get composited by 
the system compositor. Are these buffers graphic, bu graphical buffers? Yeah. Like a tile buffers. of some kind or... A... Text texture buffers. Okay. Yeah. And then it uses core animation, which is the technology that, that does the compositing of those texture buffers on the GPU mm -hmm. to achieve smooth scrolling. So that's not a, that's not a straightforward mm -hmm. application. And it has its own set of trade-offs. This is, so there's this, I think at this point we want to refer to the talk that I did at localhost almost right. exactly a year yeah. ago. And I go into a lot more detail on this, but the Xcode 9 approach uses a lot of RAM. Mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily deal with scrolling very fast. It does do the basic scrolling task very smoothly, very nicely. And it also has the advantage of using small amounts of um, power because all the work is being done by the compositor. But I think the the deeper point that I'm trying to make here is that this is not a smoothly solved problem. Right. That if you're trying, if you're looking at this question of how do I draw my text on the screen nicely and efficiently using the technology that's available to me on macOS, that that is kind of a strangely difficult problem. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And then we did, in Xi, we did something very different than what Xcode did that we basically took the problem of how do we make the GPU do this into our own hands and wrote an OpenGL text painting layer. Mm -hmm. And um, in many ways, it's very nice. It's, um, it's very efficient. It takes about a millisecond to paint a whole screen. It's, you, you, can, you can scroll at uh, way over 120 frames a second, no problem. Um, it gets the kind of fine pixel detail right it does the rgb subpixeling right mm -hmm. which is interesting because in the latest version of mac os they don't do that anymore <laughs> and i think that's kind Can of not one of their anywhere? ways or is it just on high dpi screens or i forget the i don't i i don't know yeah. and, and that might that is also a reasonable way to do it to say that on a high dpi screen uh you have to crank four times as many pixels through the pipeline mm -hmm. if your dpi scaling factor is two and also you know, you don't maybe need it as much as if right. you're on a, a low DPI screen. So these are all very complex trade-offs. Um, but uh, the OpenGL layer gets this right and does alpha compositing in an sRGB space and all these things, this kind of attention to detail. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of rough edges that are still remaining. It doesn't yeah. do the emoji coloring right. And there's various interactions where it doesn't get the IME right. So so this was, you know, this was, this was kind of difficult. Um, but... Before that, we did not have smooth scrolling consistently at 60 frames a second, which just like was painful for me because that was the promise. And the promise <laughs> was that we use the native GUI technology to do that. And then it was like, I felt let down. I felt like there was a promise that if you just use the, the native GUI technology, that you can achieve, you know, kind of what doesn't seem like a very hard problem. How do you scroll text yeah. at? 60 frames a second we can draw a, you know a, a three-dimensional world with you know shadows and stuff like that at 60 frames no sec no problem yeah. but if you if you want to show your javascript code it's like no that's that's too much sorry hmm. i feel like that's a pretty good overview of a lot of like the major areas that we'd identified as um, being worth exploring We'll try and yeah. uh, and catch up at some point a little later, and we can try and do a more forward-looking version of this conversation. Yeah, I think that'd be I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think that'd be very helpful. Yeah. But this has been this has been great. Yeah, it's nice to sort of hear 
the prehistory, I guess. And that my and I've been involved for two years or so now. Uh, but yeah, there yeah. is. There's like some of this thinking from before then is still fresh to me, and I. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about it. And I uh, hope we can get this out to more people who are interested in the project. Yeah, and I'll include, I'll dig up some links to whatever ends up making the edit. And I'll include those for people who are following yep. along. And then maybe we'll try and do this again. Maybe not later this week, but maybe maybe next week. We'll yeah. Make that a goal. We'll sounds, see. <laughs> sounds okay. great. Look forward Thanks again, to it. Rafe. Yeah, thank you. Talk Bye. to you later.